Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com, registered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. A special coupon code is available for listeners of this podcast. Type the word KEYS for $20 off an audio course subscription. This audio course subscription gives access to all existing and new audio courses from speechtherapypd.com. With more than 200 hours of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it is only $59 per year with the code KEYS. Visit go.speechtherapypd.com slash keys for more information and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Hello, welcome to Keys for SLPs, a weekly audio course and podcast from speechtherapypd.com, exploring keys for speech language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, SLP and certified orofacial myologist experienced in rehab, outpatient, school, and private practice settings. As a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning, I'm excited to discuss information to help you excel as a professional. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals and caregivers to discuss practical therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field of speech-language pathology as we discuss a wide variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Welcome. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Keys for SLPs. As a reminder, for this live episode to get live CEUs, You must log into your SpeechTherapyPD.com account and complete the entire course content by the end of the day today. For this live presentation, you may ask questions by writing in the chat. We welcome all questions. Before we get started, here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Mary Beth Hines is the host of Keys for SLPs podcast and receives compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. No relevant non-financial relationships exist. Lindsay Howard is employed by Encompass Health. She receives compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com for this episode. No relevant non-financial relationships exist. Views expressed by Lindsay Howard are her own and do not represent Encompass Health. And now, here's a little bit about our guest today. Lindsay Howard, MSCCC, SLP, earned a Bachelor of Science from Wichita State University and a Master's of Science from Rockhurst University. She began her career in schools and private practice with students ranging from early childhood through high school. Lindsay changed her focus to work with adults at Truman Medical Centers, Research Medical Center, skilled nursing, and long-term care. She eventually found her passion in the home health setting. Currently, she works for Encompass Health. Lindsay embraces working with older adults with memory issues due to her personal experience with her family members. Welcome, Lindsay. We are so happy to have you here today to talk about person-centered memory care strategies. Yay. Thank you for having me. Well, we are just delighted that you're here. And we actually have a special dedication tonight. We would like to dedicate this episode to Richard Laughlin. That is my grandfather who actually just recently passed away last week. And this 
is especially, I guess it touches home for me because I became a speech therapist by getting to see him interact with speech therapists when I was an eighth grader, ninth grader. He had a brain aneurysm back when I was in school and I just got to see some a therapeutic intervention or a therapy that helped us get him back, so to speak. It was just a really neat experience and kind of led me into the career path I chose today. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. And thank you for being here with everything that has gone on in the past two weeks. We really appreciate you being here. And he certainly seems like he was an inspiration. And I would love to talk about his story, his journey a little bit more in our podcast. So how long have you been working in home health now? It's been so full time. I've been doing home health for about three years, but I've been working in the home health setting for about four years, four or five years total. All right. And when working with clients with memory care needs, especially in the home setting, what are the keys to successful treatment and evaluations? Well, first of all, if you've met one person with dementia, you've you've met one person with dementia. That's the same thing for really every person we meet with any cognitive issue decline. So our patients with stroke are not going to always look the same. They have definite characteristics that are similar, but along the way, you're going to meet, like I said, there's that one person with dementia, and that's that one person with dementia, and then you've got this other person with dementia, and so on and so forth. So really focusing on going back to person-centered always, and everything we do as speech pathologists, we should always be making sure that our focus is person-centered and not some script of, okay, they have this level of cognition, this is probably what I should do, serves as a guideline, but again, should really, we should always be making sure that we're meeting that person where they are the day, that day that we see them. That'll help you along the way to really have more successful therapeutic interventions. And I think that for me, it's really helped benefit the relationships and the rapport that I have with the patients, as well as family, caregivers, and even our team when we're going in and and treating these folks. Okay. So, and it sounds like with your person-centered focus, you really look at that individual and everything that you do from from your first visit throughout your whole treatment intervention, you are looking at them as an individual and you're creating their, their goals, their interventions, and based on what their strengths are as an individual. And I look forward to getting a little bit more into that. Absolutely. And honestly, it starts even before I lay eyes on a person and before I meet them, before I walk in their front door. Thankfully, we we have access to our patient information before we get to the house. It's That's a very important part of home health because there, the house is, you know, I have to drive there. I have to plan my day according to location, but as well as know, like, who am I interacting with? So if a person has a memory care deficit or a memory deficit, I'm likely going to need to be meeting with someone else there so that I can really get the full picture of of what's going on. Because as we know, when we have memory care issues, we don't always know that we have memory care issues. So mm-hmm. me getting to know the patient starts before I even see them. And I usually call a family member the night before or maybe two days before to figure out when it's going to work best for the patient. When is it going to work for the family member to also be there or whatever caregiver I need to be interacting with. And then that's kind of when my my case history starts is why why do you need me and 
many times I, I get on the phone, I say, I'm, oh, I'm Lindsay, I'm a speech therapist. And they're like, why are you calling? Who, what is a speech therapist? So the education starts then. I usually try to take in as much as I can before I get there so that I'm more prepared. And, and then that helps to ease the mind of the caregiver or so that mm-hmm. they know that it's important to be there too. And that their participation is very, very important to everything we're going to do in the home. Right, right. So uh, the last thing you want is you to come in to do your evaluation and they use that as an opportunity to uh, take a much needed rest, but without their participation, you're not going to have success. Yeah. 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 Yeah, definitely. You have a very different approach that we're going to talk about today, which is the Montessori-centered approach. So what other tools do you have in your toolbox before we talk about the Montessori approach? What other tools do you use during the initial evaluation and treatment? I would say that, you know, that for the most part, when I was going through college, I heard about the slums, you know, the that assessment tool. They get something out of 30 and that's supposed to say, oh, this indicates dementia or they're, you know, this, this or this. But that doesn't really show me function. And so while insurance wants to see those numbers, they want to see a score. I definitely have to utilize more than one assessment on initial evaluation in order for me to understand what, what are, is the function of the patient? What are their abilities, strengths, weaknesses, and how is that going to tailor my interaction with them throughout the therapy course? So I am using the Allen Cognitive Lacing Tool, and my company, Encompass, has really done a nice job this last year with the pandemic and everything needing to be super clean. We gave all of our leather tools back to our our home base. And then we got all plastic tools now so we can clean them more sanitary. We were able to interact with the developer of the Allen app. So he was in Australia, you know, woke up really, really early. It was like three in the morning while we were in a training at noon and, you know, here in Kansas. He walked us through utilizing the app. It is costly, but thankfully our company was able to give us like a scholarship. So I have it for free for a year to utilize to see if I really want to spend the money on the app. But the app helps walk me through step-by-step assessment, what to say. It gives me all my prompts. As a speech therapist that's in the home and also just really in any situation, you're not wanting to Mm -hmm. drag along all these materials. So it's, you know, in my pocket, which is really, really nice. And the website is a really great uh, tool. So say the Allen doesn't really work for someone that's maybe a level one, which will definitely get into stages of dementia or cognition. But the app is able to say, okay, so they're staging below the lacing tool. So it gives you options to try and do different things for assessment. Maybe you sort. Can they even determine what's green and what's red and sorting? So you're able to utilize that specific tool to help find more things out about the person and their abilities, which I really, really like. It gives the opportunity to show ability versus always being like, well, six out of 30 means nothing to me really. On an, mm-hmm. on an assessment tool. So I utilize that. I utilize the global deterioration scale along with the Allen. So say, so say I eval someone and they have a diagnosis of dementia or Alzheimer's, I'll go in and I'll use the slums to get that score that insurance might want to see. 
and then that will indicate dementia, then I utilize a lacing tool or something else that's appropriate for their level. And then that helps gear me up for further interventions and using what ability they have, what function I really want to hit that is person-centered and what that means, what that score indicates they're capable of doing. So those are the really specific tools that I would utilize for someone that has a memory care that's not mild, that's more significant than mild, maybe more moderate, severe. Okay. And tell us about the principles of Montessori methods and how you incorporate Montessori methods into memory care. Sure. So the Montessori method, if, if before I got into home health, I had no, no idea what that meant from a therapeutic intervention for me as a speech therapist with a geriatric population or older adults. I would say my knowledge of it was friends are putting their kids into a Montessori school and more of that educational side of Montessori. For me, Montessori principle is that it's something that's going to be to create independence, to be person-centered, and to hit function and ability more than just memorizing these five words and implementing writing something down. Because at this stage, typically people aren't right, able to write things down. They can't even remember that they have a notebook to write something down. So you've got to figure some something else out that's, that's, that's going to hit a function or ability such as locking brakes on a wheelchair or cooking or engaging in social activities participating in bingo. That that's more of that Montessori method that you're going to see in home health or even implementing it in a skilled setting as well, outpatient, those types of things. All right, so independent, person-centered and focused on function to increase their ability or use their abilities that they have. Well, yeah. And that also helps with the goal writing process too, which we will definitely address later, but at the end of the day, you're wanting to identify ability and what is your role in engaging them in what their strength is so that they are more safe, so that they're functioning. Maybe it's the daughter sets up the meds. We just need to be able to make sure that we're taking the meds or the patient is always falling and they have a walker. They see the walker, but they push the walker aside, or they're always leaving the walker in the bathroom or the bedroom. So identifying ability with need, and then also within that case history, getting to know the patient or your person that you're treating, and what's something that's important to them, or what in their past, you know, because we're meeting them where they are, maybe they think, Maybe they're 88 years old, but they, they, they're stuck in their 30s, you know. Maybe they had a paper out when they're 13 years old. Those little things that you get along the way so you can kind of build rapport are so key in, in being able to engage your patient in something that means something to them. Because it means something to me that they take that walker, right, to the bathroom. Maybe we name the walker so that it's, it means something to them and incorporating those types of things and aspects into the therapy has really been beneficial for building that self-esteem up because most people that have dementia know that something mm-hmm. is not right. And that confusion creates anxiety and creates fear and creates all these things that really hinder being able 
to be successful in whatever setting that they're in. Okay. All right. So let's talk about the case history because that is how you're going to find out about the paper route if, if they're not talking about it. But even if they are talking about it, you might be confused at what they're talking about. So you need to find out what, what are they talking, newspapers, what, you know, so you need to figure out what this means. So tell us about how you go about collecting your case history and what is important at the end of your case history. What do you want to know? Sure. So like I said in the beginning, I'll make my phone call and initiate that plan of care or that initial visit. And I met very often with the what's a speech therapist, my loved one can talk just fine. Or I find out that the communication is something, oh yeah, they forget their words. But really what I'm wanting to do in that situation is introduce my role. And hopefully whoever has maybe seen that person before is also advocating for me. So my team, uh, PTOT, social work, nursing, they're all well-versed on what I do as a speech therapist because we educate that often. And so they're able to help me be seen as an asset versus sometimes I say I'm a speech therapist and they're like, oh, well, mom already had speech therapy. And all they did was ask them those five, like to name five words and draw a clock and, you know, those types of things. So that's my, my opportunity to really say, okay, I hear you. That is definitely part of the initial evaluation is I do have to take some assessment, but really what I'd like to do is be able to come into your world with your loved one and identify some areas that maybe are in need. Like, oh, my loved one doesn't, all they ever want to do is watch TV or they always put two pads on. We're going through so many pads while there's like an incontinence issue or they have heart failure and their legs are swelling. So I'm able to be like, okay, I, I, I see based on what I see medically that this patient or this person in your home has these things going on. And this is how I can help in that, in, in that way. Or I even am saying, Hey, just, if you don't mind, I'd love to come and introduce myself and, and just see what I can do to help identifying who is the caregiver. What's their knowledge of the patient's situation? Where are they from? Most people remember maybe where they were and now they're in either their home or their daughter's home because they're homebound. So, you know, they have to qualify for home home health services. You have to be bound to your home. So figuring out where have they been, what's the impairment or how is their dementia or their memory loss or whatever they went to the hospital for now as it's exacerbated with all these changes in meds, changes in environment, what is it that you need your loved one to be able to do so that you can get through the day sometimes or, mm-hmm. or not be so stressed and worried about your that person constantly? A lot of the case history is similar to what you would ask in any case history, you know, for a voice, voice patient or for someone that's had a stroke, you're identifying what were they able to do and now they can't. And how is that impacting their day-to-day the increasing dependency upon you as the caregiver? So I look okay. at a lot of that. Then really the case history is ongoing. You're getting to know your person that you're seeing more and more. And what I really love just to kind of put a, a thing in there about home health is that I'm in their home. I'm in their space and where are we most comfortable is is our own home. And so I, I have found that 
sometimes it's they may think that I'm just there watching them, you know, have their coffee and we're talking about their day and, you know, I'm interacting with their dog. But what I'm doing is I'm gathering information and I'm able to utilize their environment to create my functional goals. It's a really nice way to get to know someone. And being that my I had the opportunity to know all grandparents up into my 30s, for me, it's it's almost like going, you know, going back to a grandparent's house or something. But I will say that kind of just I'm kind of getting off topic here, but say I'm getting to know that person and I notice that they love cars. They love old cars. I had a specific person I was working with and he was apprehensive about the walker, which most most people are. They're like, oh, I don't need that, you know, that pride in them. So what we did is we said, well, how can we make this walker appealing to you? And by getting to, I saw that he was really interested in old cars and all of those types of things. So we named his walker the hot rod. Oh, that's great. (laughs) You know, and then he took that walk. He was showing that walker off and he, well, and then it led to the whole, you need to be safe with your walker. You know, we're not going to go racing in the hallways or anything like that. But that ability to get to know the person, build rapport so that they were sharing some of those things or just being in their environment. I saw, I had the opportunity to see what his world looked like maybe before he was in this assisted living and like brought that in. And and that changed the name of the game for him. It, he was willing to use his walker more. So it was really fun. And it was meaningful. I mean, that actually helped him with his memory. Absolutely. Yeah. Because the goal for the Montessori method is to put it back on that person. What is it that that's meaningful to them? And for him, it wasn't meaningful for him to to take the walker with him. But it was meaningful for the staff. It's meaningful for his safety. So how can we get him to, in a way, buy in and see mm-hmm. that we're not just saying, you need to use your walker, you need to use your walker. It was then oh, I see you got your hot rod here today, you know? Oh, I love, you know, and then it was a conversation piece and engaged, he improved social, you know, social parts of his life. And took away whatever stigma that he had attached to the walker. Yeah, absolutely. So that's just one example of the importance, I think, of getting to know our people and looking past the clinical side of things sometimes and really, I mean, they're a person first and, you know, each time I go into the home, I, how would I want my loved one to be cared for in this setting? Um, and just approach it from that standpoint. Okay. And, and you also want to use their strengths to develop strengths and interests to develop their goals. So let's get into a couple uh, case studies. Okay. So one thing that I think is important to hit on too is that most people, people as we if we have dementia or we have a memory loss it is going to be really challenging to engage in activities we may we just may be not don't know what we're we have access to um, because that engagement becomes a, a problem so let's say all I can get my husband to do is is watch tv he just all he wants to do is watch tv this particular family it was important that the husband engaged so that he was getting out of the chair because he was starting to develop wounds on his his bottom from sitting too long. And then that was increasing weakness. So he was Mm. having more falls. So his lack of engagement and what seemed to be his lack of desire to engage in his world 
was hindering his safety, hindering his health. This particular situation, he was someone that loved cars. Also, a lot of my men love cars. (laughs) He was a pilot. He flew planes and things like that. And really, the only thing I could get in this particular situation was how for them, it was important for him to reminisce. He and his significant other would sit and watch TV, but she was thinking that, oh, he just wants to watch TV. So I'll just, that's what he wants to do. So we'll watch TV. So I provided some education about the importance of reminiscing as a therapeutic intervention to improve that social engagement. And then it's also looking at that long-term memory. And they have a bunch of pictures. Their children had given them like one of those albums that that was electronic and it had pictures that would pop up and slide through. So we made a goal that they would engage in reminiscing activities every day for a certain amount of time. And so she would initiate that with, with this person And he would then start to ask questions. So it was really us trying to help engage in communication. And then I led that from the importance of just getting him to be more engaged so that his he's not maybe as sad or blue because he's bored. And then that led to making sure I'm working with the physical therapist who wants them to implement, you know, the home exercise program. So then it was engaging in space retrieval. And every time you get done with breakfast, what should you do? Exercise. And then getting the patient's wife to be involved in those exercises and teaching and coaching her on appropriate communication to use. So instead of saying, I want you to do this, again, it goes back to language and what how we say is very important to that buy-in. So it was more, can you help me with this? Can you help me go for a walk? Can you help me get these exercises done? Because I'm I want to be able to be strong and stay out of the hospital, you know, whatever, whatever. So tying it back into that, giving the person that I'm treating some say and some ownership of what we're doing, so that it doesn't just feel like everyone's telling me what to do and I have no independence anymore. And while like he couldn't drive a car anymore, that was a big deal. It was all about talking about the cars, right? Not pretending that they don't exist anymore because they're a big part of his life, right? Who he is, yes. That it, it is. It's who he was. He he ended up giving his his car to a grandson because he wanted to keep it in the family so then we we're able to talk about about that and the importance of family and just all these things that led to him feeling honestly happier and educating his loved ones on those strategies to implement because If you're saying, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And that's the only thing you know how to do because that's typically how we interact with our loved ones. What do you want for dinner? Oh, I don't know. If I don't know there are options out there, kind of taking that step back and educating on what's what's meaningful to this person, give them two options. Do you want hamburgers today or do you want this? So you eliminate that need for them to think on their own. You're 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 initiating it and then letting them letting it, it go from there. So that's one particular one that led to sometimes, yes, we're there for the patient, but it it led to a happier interaction between the husband and wife because she didn't feel like she was constantly like, you need to do this, you need to do that. And he's like, well, I don't, you know, he, she didn't know that the initiation was the problem. She just Mm -hmm. thought he didn't want to do it, but really it was, he couldn't initiate that on his own. So how can we get, 
you know, get that initiation to improve. Well, I love that you use that helping strategy. Can you help me do this? And and how, so you figured out what he would like, how he wanted to be. He probably considered himself a helpful person. And so using that, can you help me was just enough to engage him. Well, it sounds like you really helped improve the quality of his life while you were working with him. So that's great. How long did you work with that family? I, I should say that person, but really you it's it's person and family centered. I would say for them, it was probably four to six weeks. So typically my interventions might, it varies that, you know, person to person depends on, do they have PTN, OTN, skilled nursing? Because then adding another therapy is like, whoa, five appointments a week is a lot for people Mm -hmm. at home. And so for them, PT and OT were the priority because he needed to get stronger. He needed to address safety in in his bathing routine. Um, So those were a high priority because the falls were happening mainly because of the weakness, right? So they worked with him on physical therapy, worked with him on the, the occupational therapy, and then they referred me kind of towards the end of his episode. I then came in and helped with maintenance. So that procedural memory of... Every time you're done with breakfast, what do you do? I do my exercises and then engaging him in his exercises. Okay, show me your exercises. Can you help me go through those? Or having his wife show me that she could teach back that skill. And then so I think we worked for about four to six weeks together. At the end of that, for, for this particular person, they were going to transition into from home to an assisted living situation just due to some family dynamics. And so then that was also part of my training or my sessions and treatment was helping with the transition and how to cope with that as a caregiver and a loved one, but also kind of not to necessarily prepare the patient because you can't prepare anyone for that move, but kind of helping coach the family on how to help with the transition part and know that there's going to be sadness and anger and guilt. And those are all normal things to feel, but what was best for that particular situation. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that one. Okay. I know you have a couple others that you wanted to share. (laughs) Then more specific to falls. And um, I did go on the whole like home exercise route, but specifically if someone is in say like a skilled setting or like a locked unit, maybe the patient would benefit from space retrieval to use their call button. So they're always falling. They're always falling. And the caregivers, like this particular person had great ability for teach back. If we use spatial retrieval, she could put it into procedural memory. So after her assessment, I determined I did some space retrieval trials and she was someone that was Allen stage three to four, uh, which I probably should go back and go through those, but she was Allen stage three to four. And so space retrieval was something that we, we could implement there. So we, talked with the caregivers. We said, okay, what do we need to do? What, what's this, what's the biggest limiting factor for her? And it was that she was kind of stubborn, like with using the walker, like my other gentleman, but hers was more kind of perseveration on, she would pull the button all the time. So what was the purpose of the button to her and how do we help her find that purpose with the button and asking for help when she needed it? She knew that she needed to get help to go to the bathroom, but she fixated on just using the call light for for things. And then that ended up 
creating a whole nother mess with the, with the, you know, it's like, oh yeah, you're using the call button, but every five minutes is not great. Right. We don't want to fixate <laughs> on it. I was able to just go in and a lot of our visits were very repetitive. And that's a huge thing is trying to have that patience of, you know, nobody wants to do the same thing for 30 minutes, but that's what we would do. I would go in and introduce myself and ask if she needed to use the bathroom. So then I was teaching and coaching her on whenever you need to use the bathroom, what should you do? Pull my call button. And then kind of helping reduce fixation from there because then we would go through the process of pulling the call button and then the steps to going to the bathroom and then just kind of retraining and doing that um, over and over again, going for a walk and then coming back to the room, sitting down, asking the question, if you should go to, if you need to get up or if you need help, what should you do? So then reinforcing with space retrieval specifically to help reduce some of that fixation on the call button by showing her what the purpose of the call button was. No falls, which is awesome. The caregivers were happier because <laughs> she wasn't always on the button. So that's just more maybe common, I would say, as something that I see a lot. The next is more of like a personal story. My grandmother also, she had dementia. She like I, I uh, she was a homemaker, very proud of keeping her home tidy all the time and things like that. And I knew that I, we needed to engage her in Montessori activities. And so cleaning up the kitchen was something she always did. And she would engage, you know, can you help me get the dishes or can you help me with this or that? The Montessori activity that was functional to her was keeping the house clean or getting the laundry done. So we would sit down, we would sort laundry, we would do it together. And what was awesome about this was she she's kind of stopped seeing it as a functional activity and a chore. She's like, these are chores you're making me do. And although I'm her granddaughter, you know, she asked me if she was going to get paid for doing all these chores. And were you a therapist at this point? I was. Yeah. I, okay. it, this would have been four years ago, probably now. Okay. Hilarious. She, then she started transitioning into that well, I don't want to do all these chores, you know? So we asked, you know, what would be, what she would like if she was to engage in these chores, what she she would like. And she said, well, I, I should be getting paid for this. And so we, we literally paid her the same money every time. I love like a, it. A basket of money that we put in and she, we, they would pay her after she was done with whatever chore she engaged in. And I mean, and then that worked for a while, you know, we met in that situation, we met her where she was at. She no longer was considering herself a homemaker, right? This was now getting being more maybe of a younger state of mind. And these were chores that she had to do. So it was a very, it was fun for me. I, I mean, just because she's my grandma, so I thought it was hilarious. And then my whole family, you know, got a kick out of that. But yeah, so that was a fun way to engage someone in something that they liked, but then still I, we met her where she was, where that day she was not, that wasn't her house. We were making her clean someone else's house, you know? So yeah, meeting, kind of going back to that, meet them, meet our people where they are and, and how can you leave them feeling better at the end of and the it, visit? And again, she wanted to find value and purpose in what she was doing. And by paying her, you gave that to her. Now, you also had told me that she enjoyed cooking. And so for someone who enjoys cooking, but they're no longer able to cook for the family and they're no longer safe in the kitchen, how would you develop Montessori goals for that person? Sure. So 
you know, during the Allen lacing tool test, it asks you to see if that person can, you know, see all the holes and can they hold the string in there. So you're able to see their dexterity and what their body is capable of and how able they are to um, follow some instructions. Identifying stage, are they able to follow maybe one step, two step? Are they able to follow written instruction? So going through that in the assessment process. And then, I mean, no big cookies are something very simple or so not doing anything that's going to be like a hot stove, you know, because usually those are no-nos, but doing something like maybe no bakes or even Play-Doh, you know, and, and a way to like address something that might be a dignity thing, like a baby doll or a cat or Play-Doh or coloring is just putting that thing, say it's, it's, it's the Play-Doh because we don't have access to cookies, especially during COVID and, you know, whatnot. So okay. say we have Play-Doh and we're wanting them to engage in something like that. Being able to just show it to the person and saying, what do you think of this? And and then you're not crazy for asking them to do something with something that's modified. But maybe the goal is to bake with a family member at Christmas. Everyone wants grandma to come and, and maybe every Christmas they bake cookies. So then it's kind of going through with some safer methods like, like the Play-Doh option. Can they do X, Y, and Z? Can they roll it out? Can they, you know, cut cookies, cookie cookie forms out of the Play-Doh? And then educating the family on how to make that, how to set that person up for success during that situation. So they could follow one-step instructions, but making sure the environment is free of a lot of other distractions or showing, so modeling for the patient or modeling for mom how to roll it out. So you do it and then you say, oh, can you help me? And then maybe your hand over hand. So it's it's that ability to, again, find what they can do, what their strength is through the assessment piece. Case history, family would like grandma to be able to participate in the baking that's a tradition and then setting or, you know, modeling and priming that patient then for that success in the functional environment of going home for Thanksgiving and doing that task. So wonderful. Well, and I want to go back a little bit to the Allen lacing yes. <laughs> scales. So um, I have to admit, when you were saying lacing, I thought you were that you were using that as a therapeutic term. I'm not familiar with that. So but now that I recall a previous conversation, I understand what you just said. I understand it's actual lacing. Lacing. Yes. I'm so sorry. Yes. I actually yes. I wish I had, I mean, for the listeners that aren't going to visually see this, it's basically a rounded square that has holes along the edges. And there are three different types of stitches that you're going to do with this tool. So there's a whip stitch, you know, there, there I'm not going to go into each of the stitches just because I think it could be lost on people, but the point is to have them look at this tool. Can they, okay. can they see and identify the holes and then maybe problem solve if they make an error or they twist the shoelace, so to speak, around? Or, you know, can they model what you you show them? Or can't do they forget the instructions and then go back to the other stitch that they've already done? So that tool is used to help identify maybe a, a certain level of cognition. 
I don't have everything memorized, so I always have visual aids with me, and the app that I use is awesome because it helps. It takes me step by step through, and then it says, "Oh, this is where they're at." But the stages of dementia, Riesberg stages of Alzheimer's, aka the Global Deterioration Scale, takes you through one to seven. So step one or stage one, no cognitive decline, to seven, meaning very severe cognitive deficit. So you would utilize these tools, right, to assess and determine where is my person today. So so let's say I, I would see I, I, I'll get a lot of fours, moderate cognitive decline, trouble remembering personal history. Maybe they forgot they have three kids or they forgot that they are from Topeka or wherever. I'm in Kansas, so. Yeah. <laughs> And so trouble remembering personal history, trouble traveling or handling finances. So maybe they always took the bus to work and now they cannot do that. They're getting lost when they're driving or they get to the grocery store and then they can't find their their vehicle at like that. It's impossible. And then they can't problem solve. Like if I push my button, then I might be able to get the alarm to work more. You see a lot more withdrawal from situations at a stage four where um, if it's challenging, I'm probably not going to do it anymore. So that's something that then I would say this stage is one of those. It's hard to see if you are maybe a loved one that's not there all the time. It's easy to mask at this stage unless you're getting phone calls like mom is lost at the grocery store, you know, those types of things. Mm -hmm. But this is kind of where you would, I would say you're starting to see some really big flags of dementia, Alzheimer's. Then stage five, more progression, uh, moderately severe cognitive decline, evidence of short-term memory loss, lack of orientation, time, place, and even needing assistance with choosing what's appropriate to wear. So say it's cold outside, but or it's, it's 100 degrees, but grandma is wearing a fleece sweater and all, you know, Christmas gear, you know. So we're there and then, you know, it progresses on six and seven. And I like to think of the person from like their body standpoint. So as we go through these stages, we also start to lose those sensations. Like we become more egocentrical. So we, we are, we start to only be able to really function within ourselves. So we're not aware of the surroundings as much. We're not aware. We don't see that trip hazard, you know, cause we, we just don't see it. And so sometimes a lot, a lot of what I'm doing is going in and identifying where they're at. And then maybe, maybe they can't remember to put their feet up and they're not going to wear the stockings for heart failure because they're not sensing that part of themselves anymore. And okay. then like even the incontinence, not knowing when I need to go to the bathroom and having more accidents um, and things like that, that starts to fade away as our cognition declines. When are we thirsty? When are we hungry? I can kind of start to identify, okay, at this stage, you need to be offering your mom water every two hours. So we reduce that dehydration or putting them on like a toileting schedule, like every two hours we're going to toilet. So we reduce incontinence. So then we reduce, reduce all of the issues that come with incontinence with skin breakdown. So it, it's a, it's a lot, you know, it's a, it's very, I'm glad I've had a lot of that skilled side so that I could kind of know all these little pieces, but definitely working in home health, I have learned so much more outside of my speech therapy box and how what we do from a cognitive standpoint connects to that whole person. 
Well, and it sounds like you're really taking a team-centered approach. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have regular care meetings with the other people who are seeing that patient, or is that just kind of an ongoing? Well, COVID has changed everything because we don't meet in person, but we do Zoom. And honestly, I'm by myself all day unless we I schedule with a therapist, like maybe PT and I work together. I'm training them on some strategies to use to help participation improve or something like that. But really, yeah, we're, we meet once a week and discuss all patients that are coming up for recertification. Maybe it's the end of their episode. And then what are our maybe problems we're having or success stories? We email through our work email all day. Um, and our cell phones are attached at our hips, you know, it's a lot of trust. It's a lot of trusting your colleagues to identify needs and communicate when things are going wrong. But our team works really, really well together on that. And that I'm very thankful to have a good team. Well, that's great. It is always good to have a good team. That That's for sure. All right. Well, let's talk about um, speaking of COVID. So COVID-19 increased isolation of all Americans, right? And especially the elderly, which has led to mental health challenges for people across the ages, right? But you going into the people's homes and working with older adults who are caregivers, as well as the people that you're there to, to help, that are patients, you've seen some mental health challenges. So can you talk a little bit more about what you're seeing out in the field? Sure. Just like everyone, I'm sure everyone is is seeing the impact of COVID on their own families and relationships and things like that. Home health has been very I am so glad that I'm able to go into the home. I'm the one person that's still going into the home. Like maybe the family members weren't even coming to see that person, but they were allowing us to come in because of that skilled need, either PT, OT or whatnot. I would say the craziest thing for me is I, I guess going back to a case study, I had a patient that was unable to see family for, you know, six months and had a major decline in communication, in physical ability, watching the news every day, all day, and all the things going on on TV. And it created a lot of fear. And it created a lot of decline in memory. So I guess I'm seeing so much more either heart heartbreak syndrome or, you know, things that I wouldn't say would have happened before COVID. Like I wouldn't have doctors being like, I think they're so heartbroken that their cognition has declined. What can you do? Can you come? Like I would say speech has actually from a home health standpoint been kind of picking up. I am busy because so many people are noticing, oh my gosh, my mom can't, she doesn't even, can't even hold a conversation anymore once they're able to get back into that skilled, skilled living center, that memory care unit or whatever it is. But yeah, just fear, anxiety is really impacting cognition and memory and, and even self-esteem. So going back to tying it back into the Montessori method, it's when you, when I'm going in is it, what is, what means something to these people? And if it's engaging with family, how can we make that happen via whatever tools I have access to or community resources or just education, making it about the person that's isolated and giving everyone the tools to 
help them feel loved and accepted and, and like there's, they have purpose again. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, not going into the dining room anymore because of COVID. I mean, they, people are now, I would say most of our skilled or my, my assisted livings are doing group dining again, but for a long time it was dining by themselves in their room. And as we know, dining is a social activity. So sometimes that I would go during a mealtime for that person so that we could practice some of that conversation and engagement again and pragmatic skills. And so you, so you work PRN for in assisted living as well as for Encompass? So I guess what I'm saying is as a home health speech therapist, I, I go into locked memory care units. I go into assisted living because that's their home. Their home is apartment B on, you know, on the third floor or whatever. So within those communities, either memory care locked or, you know, they can, they can go ride the bus, you know, the, the ALF bus to Walmart on Fridays or something, you know, but I'm able to go into that environment as well. So no full-time home health, but we are able to get orders to go into these assisted living communities, even apartment complexes that are maybe more independent living, but, but yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you for that clarification. I would have thought that that would have been handled by people contracted through the actual assisted living. I will say that I've seen that in other places. I've seen that where they have a contract with someone in the building, but sometimes a physician, it's whoever's writing the order. So if the home health, if the order is coming from a physician that has maybe a good relationship with our company, then they want to refer to us or uncle Joe had encompassed home health. So the patient can pick, you know, I would like this other, this home health company that I know that I'm familiar with. Or the patient was already seeing you in their neighborhood home. And then they transition. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very interesting. So you, it really is good for continuity of care for you to see them, them through that. So wonderful. All right. So, well, what is your favorite part about working in home health? It's definitely being a part of the family. You know, sometimes I am getting pe- people send me home with tomatoes from their garden it doesn't feel sterile as much to me. I, I loved the hospital set, setting. Truman was where my first like clinical practicum was. And I learned about trachs there and I, my, I love trachs. So, but now I get to treat trachs in the home. It's a lot more, not less I don't suction anymore really, because most of my patients are home and they're not at that stage. It's a lot about, I'm, I'm love empowering the caregiver to know how to address some of these situations. Cause it's, it's a lot, it's, it's hard and it's scary when, mom doesn't know who you are and is mad that you're in her home. You know, that's scary. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of, I feel, I feel fulfilled to be <laughs> able to go into these homes and everyone is like one of my grandparents and, or I see it as an opportunity to help them feel whole again and not fearful of this memory care diagnosis or this, this decline. So trying to make sure that they see dementia is still living Every day is not going to be the same and how to meet that situation with care, compassion and tools, what like giving them the tools to use. So, well, it's so exciting to see that improvement and to see you making a difference and helping them at a time where they really need help. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so important. And I just wanted to remind our listeners of our live course at this time, if you have any questions, feel free to write it in the chat and we will ask Lindsay. So what would you, here's one, what, what, what are the biggest challenges of working in home health? 
scheduling and turning it off. I would say while like, you know, my people are having isolation and they're anxious and stuff, it's a lonely world in home health sometimes. And so I would say making sure that you're in any setting, making sure that you're still going home and filling up your cup and that at the end of the day, we're going to try to do the best we can and we can't change, you know, that's all you can do. I can't fix everything and it may not always work and something that worked last week isn't working this week. And knowing that at the end of the day, I am also going into someone's home. And so culturally or if, you know, whatever's going on in that home, I'm a guest there. They're not coming to my office. I am the guest Mm -hmm. there. So just, I think that's been a big one is that's the biggest challenge is just scheduling and in some of the isolation that it feels not having comrades, you know, to, to bump elbows with every day and, and finding a bathroom sometimes that is. <laughs> well, that was funny. <laughs> the first time that we were going to meet to talk about this episode, you said, oh, I have to run to the bathroom. And it was like 15 minutes later. I'm like, I hope she's okay. And it didn't dawn on. Yeah, you had to find the bathroom. You had you were driving, you had to stop, you had to find the bathroom, you had to go into a guest, you know, it's like a, a road trip every day. Yes. But I also, I like the change of scenery too. I I enjoy the change. Everything is, every day is a new day. I'm never met with monotony, I will say. How many miles do you travel from your home? Okay, so I used to drive 600 miles a week. I have a company car, so I don't pay for gas or anything like that. But shoot, I would say on a bad day, I'm going to be 100 miles in the day. Now, um, I moved closer to work, my territory I moved closer to, but then sometimes I'm lucky and I have all communities. So I have all assisted livings that day, or I've scheduled it that way. I'm able to see three people here and then I'm able to see, you know, two over there. And then it's only a 30 minute drive back home or something like that. So every day again, kind of is different. Always well, that makes things exciting though. Right. Weather, construction, <laughs> All things to take into consideration. <laughs> so you referred to your your assessment tools that you bring and you have your apps and you're working with someone in their home. So as far as other supplies or tools that you bring, is it more of a virtual toolbox or are you bringing in other tools? I would say that, for, again, since I'm going into the patient's or the person's home, I'm going to use what's in their environment. So it might be it's their med box. I'm not bringing my own med box in. You know, can they open their pill bottle? Can they open their pill box? Can they show me how to brush their teeth in their bathroom? You know, so sometimes my tools, my actual physical tools are really all there in the home. Some things that I wanted to mention that I have found extremely beneficial are are not even necessarily speech therapy, you know, educational pieces, but there's a, I, I really like Dementia by Day, her content. She has YouTube posts that she does. I think she does once a month. She'll post like a five minute video in her car with some tips. I've learned a lot about the whole embracing their reality. That is a, co- a term she coined and she's trademarked as her own, but that I bought her book. So when someone you know is living in dementia care, in a dementia care community, words to say and things to do, because that's the worst when you don't have a, you don't know what to say. You know, you're like, gosh, mom always is asking to go home. What do I do? Or she thinks that Bill down the, down the street is her boyfriend and not her own husband anymore. So 
she has been able, she has come out with a lot of great um, tips and tricks that I have found really beneficial in just the communication aspect of being a speech okay. therapist with this population. In the PDF that I am sharing, I have a couple other things that I've found really beneficial, like apps and websites for ideas for activities that you can direct OT or patients, family members to, like, I don't know what to do. We've organized the, the silverware 12 times this week. So those are my, my, my favorite, I guess, tidbits, is really kind of people that are doing the geriatric education and assisted livings and communities. That is great. Thank you for those resources. So for everyone listening to the live and recorded, the handout and the resources are available on speechtherapypd.com. So now before we go, I know we said we wanted to dedicate this podcast to your grandfather who just passed away last week. Can you tell us a little bit about his journey from the time he had his aneurysm and how his life was after that and and how you were living with him on that journey as his granddaughter. My grandpa was a quiet person to begin with. He was a truck driver, raised quarter horses, but I was his first born grandchild and the only girl. So he and I were very kindred spirits. I loved traveling with him and, you know, just enjoying his company, even though it was often silent. So I was eighth grade and going through puberty (laughs) at that age. (laughs) And so when he had his aneurysm, he was given 3% chance to live. They did a coil, you know, to remove some pressure off of his brain. Um, And he was in a medical induced coma for, I almost think that was two months. It's really hard for me to remember the details, but he came out of that and went straight from hospital to Madonna rehab. And they worked with him. And a couple things that I remember when he came home was that he thought there were two of me. So he thought there was a younger Lindsay and then this older version of her that he met, you know, when he came back. So I thought that was very interesting. But um, some of the education we were provided was to just say, he asked if we got along. So I said, yes, we, we get along very well. And and then that kind of, he, he improved and then he realized that I, it was me. So, but other things were just the therapists that we worked with really encouraged engagement and all the things that he liked to do. So he still wanted to be around horses and he couldn't drive for a while, but he would, we would go in on rides in the car. So things that he enjoyed doing, we'd go to breakfast and um, all of that. And I started speech therapy thinking I wanted to go into more of the sign language and the cochlear implant side of things. But then after he went through all of his things, I I realized how much I wanted to be a part of that process because I think for me, it was more of a, he knew what he had lost and he was really wanting to get back what he had lost. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it just, it was just something that I found really I just got really passionate about that, helping people in that regard. And just the therapy um, really helped our family cope with some of the things that he was doing and, you know, some of the things that my mom wasn't prepared for as a daughter to deal with with her dad. And it was just something that led me down a path that he he transitioned then, so he got better. And then he transitioned, you know, with most brain injuries as severe as his. He went through the stages of dementia and so, yeah, I got to see every single one of them. Mm-hmm. Well, what an inspiration. He certainly sounds like he was a hard worker 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> and very resilient despite the challenges. So it's so great. Silent but vibrant. Silent but vibrant. Oh, I like that. So you you should coin that. You should trademark that. <laughs> should after him for sure. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Well, it was so wonderful to have you here and to talk about Montessori-based memory strategies. You've given a lot of us ideas on working with older adults. So we really do appreciate it. I think you may have inspired one or two of our listeners or three or four to go into home health. Gosh. <laughs> no, I, lo- I wish that we could have students, but we can't have students in home health, at least here. In oh, Kansas. that's interesting. Why is that? I, I don't really know. <laughs> I don't really know. I've had one person shadow me, um, but we ha- it was like a whole thing. We had to sign a lot of paperwork. and But yeah, no, we don't do students for speech therapy in home health. So at least here, I don't know, or maybe it's my company, but okay. yeah, I wish. But I also think I will say on in regards to that, I'm so glad that I didn't go straight into home health because I really think I needed to see, for me, it was so beneficial to see acute to skilled to home because I got to see all that, the steps. And, and that was really helpful to see the progression, how you can go from, you know, that acute intubated side of things to eating and drinking at the dinner table with your family again. So. Right, right. And understanding what your patients, maybe not necessarily with the memory care patients, but with patients who are in home health for other reasons, what they've been through, like, for example, like your grandfather, if he if someone had had a, a brain injury, so you understand what happened in acute going to skilled and then in home. That's, yes. been, that's been the a really neat part is to see that. I have another before we go technical question. So someone can qualify for home health if they are homebound, but do they have to prove that they don't have a ride to take them to an outpatient clinic or how does that work? Medicare basically says that if leaving home is exhausting, it's not safe. They allow a person to go to like anything that requires a medical like need, like going to the pharmacy to pick up your prescriptions. You can drive there and going to a doctor's appointment. Like Medicare sees that as homebound. You're not going and making plans in the afternoon with your friends for drinks and going to the casino and stuff. But then that's also, then it puts it back on us because we have to make sure that we're identifying whether or not that person is homebound or not. So the doctor refers the patient. We go and see the patient. If we deem that the patient is not homebound, then we say they are not homebound. So we've had situations where a patient will be like, oh, on Thursdays I go to the casino. And then it's like, well, no, no, no. (laughs) You know, that's not, that's not homebound. You need to go to outpatient. COVID, I will say, laxed some of that because people were isolated to their homes and it was not safe to be in the community and go to the grocery store and some of those things. So I will say some of those Medicare rules were a little bit more, they were more lenient for patients. But yeah, that's the big, the big thing is determining homebound status. Like they can go to a cousin's birthday party if someone else is driving or whatever, but they still there has to be some sort of exhaustion or other thing going on that they can only be gone from the house for an hour or something or okay if that if they're dependent upon a caregiver to, to leave the home say Susie's grandma can't be left alone but Susie's the only caregiver and she has to go out of town because her dad is in another situation 
she ha- she can take that patient with her because she's dependent upon that person for care. That's okay. still considered homebound. They can't leave the home without another human being. Okay. If that helps. Okay. No, that's very helpful. It's a lot of case by case though, I will say, you know, there's a lot of case by case that we go through. And insurance will okay. just say, no, that that doesn't work or not, you know, or th- it does. Okay. Well, thank you again. We really appreciate your perspective and helping us develop a personalized plan, including the therapeutic goals with the Montessori methods. Very, very helpful and interesting. And thank you for all the resources that you provided our listeners. It was really great to work with you. Thank you very much. I hope to come back soon. Well, thank you. Yes. Okay. Special thanks to all of our listeners for giving us your time today. And as a reminder for this live episode to get live CEUs, you must log into your speechtherapypd.com account and complete the entire course content by the end of the day today. Thank you everyone for listening. And as always, keep up the good work. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and all podcasts offered by speechtherapypd.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Keep up the good work. 